Welcome back to The Compass, the podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're thrilled that you've chosen to download and listen as we continue our journey through God's Word. Now, in today's podcast, Pastor Kirk is going to continue our series on the church. But before we get to that, I want to take this opportunity to invite you to join us for worship. We meet at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you have any questions, you can find more information at calvaryfedville.com or call us at 479-442-4634. Again, Pastor Kirk is going to be talking about the church with a message entitled, How the Gospel Brings Us All the Way Home, from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Let's listen together. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we're going to read four or five verses here in just a few minutes. Let me ask you a question to kind of get your thoughts moving towards where we want to go in the message today. And the question is this, how in the world, how in the world did the first church impact and change their world in the way that they did in just a few short years? These were, by and large, powerless people. They had no influence. They had no positions of power or control. And yet they changed the world dramatically. We might ask and kind of probe a little bit and ask, well, was it because of a superior strategy for church growth? (laughs) I don't think so. They never heard of the church, at least in the form that it was beginning to take in the book of Acts. Was it the influential people that embraced Christianity? Again, I don't think that would be an answer. Was it the quality of the theological training of their pastors and their leaders? Perhaps it was a compelling advertising campaign. I don't think so. Maybe it was their superior praise band, their lights, their fog machines, their children's and student ministries, their bus ministry, or their bigger events. Or maybe it was just the apostles were just so cool and so much cooler than the stuffy rabbis of the day, maybe that's what prompted such dramatic growth. How did they turn their world upside down? And by the way, that's what the scripture says about them in the book of Acts. In fact, it was the people of Thessalonica, the very city of the church that this letter we're gonna read from in a moment is written to, that when Paul and the others came there and preached, it said, these that have turned the world upside down have come here also. And it was not stated as a compliment. It was a complaint. Well, the answer to the question does not lie in strategy. <clears throat> it does not lie in skill or size or strength or street smarts. The answer to their dramatic growth does not lie in any of the things 
that are being taught today as the way to grow a church. There is a key truth here that you need to know, and it'll be kind of the foundation of everything I'll say this morning, and it is this. The early Christians and their leaders were gospel-shaped people. They were gospel-shaped people. They didn't know a lot about church growth. In some cases, they were just beginning to get their theology squared away. They didn't have all the tools and all the bells and whistles that churches have today. They were just gospel-shaped people. And that is what made all the difference. For 2,000 years since then, we've been trying to find shortcuts to that. We've been trying to find an easier way than the time-consuming work of letting the Word of God shape us into the image of Jesus Christ. But these people had been radically changed by the power of the gospel as it worked in their lives. The gospel had not just influenced their opinions, it had dramatically impacted and changed their lives. With that in mind, let's read this text from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And by the way, the um, context of this Paul had written his first letter to the Thessalonians, and within just a few months, he is now writing a second letter. But the second letter was in response to some troubling news that he had heard about the church. This church, though they had welcomed the truth, though they were being changed and they were being impacted by the gospel, they had fallen prey to some false teaching. And the false teaching was this that the second coming of the Lord had already taken place and they had missed it. And Paul is writing to correct that. And in chapter 2, he does spend quite a bit of time correcting that. But then he gets to this paragraph beginning in verse 13 and he reminds them who they are. And he reminds them whose they are. And he challenges them and compels them and calls them to stand firm in their faith. Verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope, Through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. This is the word of the Lord. Well, notice what Paul said to these everyday believers that were being shaped 
by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice he said in verse 13 that they were loved by the Lord. The same is true about you. Also in verse 13, he said that they were God chosen and that they were spirit sanctified. And all of this was resulting in the belief they had in the truth of God. All of that in verse 13. Verse 14 tells us they were called through the gospel. Now, folks, understand you don't come to Jesus through the gospel. And then once you believe the gospel, you move on to other things. You never outgrow or leave the gospel behind. I'll explain that as we progress today. They were called through the gospel. Verse 15, they were standing firm in doctrine. He called it in verse 15, the traditions. And typically when we refer to traditions, it's kind of in a negative context But these traditions that he referred to in verse 15, this is the doctrine and the truth of the gospel and of the word. They were, his prayer was that they would be established in every good work and word. That's verse 16 and 17. And then if you go back to his very first phrase in verse 13, Paul was motivated to worship And thank God for these people. I want you to know, folks, these are words for Calvary Baptist Church. These are truths for you and me today. These weren't words written 2,000 years ago for just a single church half a world away. These are words for us. This is what it means to be gospel-shaped people who live gospel-shaped lives. So let's start from there, and I'm going to give you an outline in just a moment, but I need to give you a little background about this thing we call the gospel. And I'll do it by, first of all, asking you, what is the gospel? What is it? Did you know that the word gospel is mentioned almost a hundred times All in the New Testament, not the Old Testament. All in the New Testament. If you begin to read some of those verses, you'll find that the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. That Paul says he was not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God unto salvation. We are taught to believe and to obey the gospel. We are commanded as a church to advance and to spread the gospel to our community, to our families, to our region, to the world. That's why we support ministries like LifeWord. We are to live lives worthy of the gospel. Paul said that to the Philippians. Well, I could go on and on some 93 or 94 times. Every time the New Testament mentions the gospel, it tells us something about it. So I return to the question, what is the gospel? And if I were to put you on the spot and I were to actually call out a name or two here and say, what is the gospel? Somebody would say this, the gospel is the good news of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Is that right? 
It is. That is not a wrong answer. But I want to tell you something. That's a vacation Bible school answer. It's good and it's right, but it's not complete. Because if it is simply the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, then what do we do with all the rest of the Bible, which is called the gospel? Let me just explain to you what I mean. Have you ever thought about the fact that every time the New Testament mentions the word gospel, when it talks about Jesus preaching the gospel, or it talks about John the Baptist preaching the gospel, every time that the New Testament mentions the gospel, it is mentioned before the New Testament has even been written down. It's talking about the Old Testament scripture. It's talking about those 39 books from Genesis to Malachi. And it's referring to that as the gospel, that that's the only Bible that people in the New Testament had. The New Testament was being written, but it wasn't written yet. So of all those 93 or 94 times that gospel is mentioned in the New Testament, it has reference to the Old Testament scriptures. 14 of those times are the preaching of John the Baptist and Jesus, that they came preaching the gospel. That was even before Jesus was crucified. That when Jesus preached the gospel, it wasn't his death, burial, and resurrection he was preaching. Neither John the Baptist. They were preaching from, again, the Old Testament. Now get this, in Galatians chapter 3, Paul says that God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. That took place in Genesis chapter 22. That the gospel was preached to Abraham and it was preached to him by God himself. You know what the gospel was that he preached to Abraham? I will make of you a great nation and through you all the world will be blessed. That's the gospel. But did you know that God declared the gospel even before that? Even before Abraham drew a breath? Go back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And the promise of a Messiah that will one day come. God preached the gospel to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. So if I were to ask you, what is the gospel now, what would your answer be? Well, it needs to be this book right here. All 66 books, all 1,187 chapters, this is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what it means to be gospel-shaped when you embrace not just the parts of the Bible you like or not just the parts that make you comfortable or not just the parts you think is going to get you into heaven while ignoring the rest. Understand, if you're going to be a gospel-shaped believer, a gospel-shaped person, if we're going to be a gospel-shaped church, we're going to have to be a Bible-shaped church.
Now, maybe a better way for me to define and help you understand the gospel is by recognizing how it impacts, changes, and shapes our lives. And to do that, I'm going to give you four words. Four words that make a natural progress of how the gospel works in our lives. You see, we are called and commanded to do what in the Great Commission? We are to go and do what? Make disciples. Well, listen to me, folks. It takes a disciple to make a disciple. Pastor Dan is going to preach about that next Sunday, about our commission as a church. You have heard me share these four words before, those of you that have been around for a while, but I want to share it with you again by way of reminder because I guarantee you, you've forgotten it. You do forget some of the things that I say. That was funny. Maybe I should say, sometimes you might even remember something that I say. Maybe that's nearer to the truth. Four words. <clears throat> the first word is drama. Drama. Now, you and I usually use that in a negative way. We'll say, oh, <clears throat> so-and-so has a bit too much drama in his or her life. Do you know anybody like that? If you don't, I'll introduce you to some, because I do. There's some people that just live from one drama to the next. But I'm using drama in a good way. It is the story. And the story is a romance. It is a love story. The Bible is a romance. It is a love story. And when God decided to communicate with humanity by way of giving words to be written on a page that you and I can hold in our laps with all of these 40 plus authors living over some 4,000 years that to write down one cohesive story, a, a line of thought, a, a revelation from God. He didn't choose a bunch of rules and regulations, although it does contain some. Instead, he chose to do it through a story. Why? Because stories capture our imagination, do they not? Stories get to our minds. They get into our hearts and we remember them. And this story begins with a perfect creation in a perfect world, in a perfect place where two people walked and talked with God day by day, face to face. But then chapter 3 begins with the words, now the serpent. And we have to read quite a ways into the story to even begin to realize where the serpent came from. He was the highest of all the angels of heaven. He was the most beautiful, the most powerful. He was the anointed cherub that covereth is the way Ezekiel describes him. 
But he was caught up in his own beauty and in his own pride, according to Isaiah. He rebelled against the Father in heaven, and he sought to take the Father's place and to overthrow uh, the King of glory and the King of heaven and to take his throne. You say, why would he ever allow that? Why would God ever allow him to come and tempt Adam and Eve? Understand this. God will allow what he hates in order to accomplish what he loves. And that's why God allows some of your painful experiences, some of your disappointments in life, some of your heartaches. The reason God allows even what he hates is to accomplish what he loves. And sometimes it's only through that painful process that the Christ-likeness he has in mind can be formed in you and me. How would this world have ever known the extent of God's love for us if he had not allowed sin to enter into the world through a fallen angel named Lucifer recognized in chapter 3 of Genesis as the serpent. So we see the fall of man. In the last two chapters of this story in Revelation, we see everything being redeemed and no mention of that fallen angel. No mention of Satan. Why? Because by that time he's been cast into the lake of fire with all of his followers. So we see the first two chapters starting off in perfection. We see the last two chapters ending up in perfection. And in the middle we have the most amazing story romance that has ever been recorded for mankind. And it has been recorded for you and me. Folks, listen to me. This story, this drama of redemption, of God's creative work and mankind's fall and what God does to bring man to himself, understand this story given to us in Scripture and the resulting Christian worldview is the only worldview the only belief system, the only philosophy, if you will, that adequately explains the human condition and the human experience. Far Eastern religions can't explain it. Islam cannot explain it. Atheism has no answer at all. All these other worldviews fall short. Only Christianity makes sense out of this world and how the story has unfolded around us. We see the gospel in the Garden of Eden. We see the gospel in the flood story. For Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. We find the gospel in Abraham's story. We see it in Moses, the deliverer, a type of Christ who would come later to deliver his people. We see it in the Passover lamb as the blood is shed and applied to the doorpost of the house and keeping people safe under the blood. We see the gospel in the Psalms. We see the gospel in the messages of the prophets from start to finish. This story of redemption is the gospel and it's what should be 
shaping our lives. Let me just give you three bullet points about it, about the drama. The Bible tells the story of God's love for fallen mankind. Jesus is the central character, not you and me. Now, our generation needs to hear that. And thirdly, all history is his story. Listen to me. Rather than you being the star of your own story, we learn that we are a part of God's story. He sweeps us into his story rather than us inviting him and sweeping him into ours. He is writing his own story with himself as the lead character. Michael Horton says this about the gospel. The validity of the gospel does not depend on how well it works for you. It does not depend on how it makes your life more meaningful or how it gives you moral direction and inspirational motivation. Instead, the gospel is a very particular claim based upon events that happened in dateable history with significance for the entire cosmos. This is the drama This is where it all starts. This is why when we share our faith with our unbelieving neighbors, it's not just enough to begin with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus because they would say, why in the world would he do that? You've got to start with the drama at the beginning and be able to share with them the story and how it unfolds. So there is a drama. Word number two is the word doctrine. Doctrine. Boy, that's almost a cuss word, isn't it? It's almost a cuss word. You hear people oftentimes say, don't preach doctrine, just preach Jesus. People say doctrine divides, but Jesus unites. There's so much falsehood in all of that. Doctrine deals with the realities. Here's the point. This is how it progresses. As you read the drama, this romance, and you understand this storyline, it will reveal timeless truths along the way that you need to know. It will present some realities. It will certainly raise some questions for which you will never find an answer in this lifetime. But it will give you timeless truths, realities. These are the bullet points. As we begin to see and understand the big story of what God is doing in the universe, it yields timeless, eternal truths for you and me. These truths are not relative, changing with the whims of men or the shifting uh, winds of time. These realities, these truths are fixed They are eternal. They are life impacting. They are real. We call these timeless truths doctrine, as I've already used the dirty word. Understand this, because we hear in our day and time today about how we've got to find our own truth. Listen to me. 
There is only one truth, and it's God's truth. You need to find how you fit into it rather than trying to find for you something that'll make you happy and pleased. God's truth is not relative. It doesn't change from person to person. There's not one truth for me with a different truth for you. God's truth is not relative. It's not fleeting. It's not temporary or passing. What was true for Moses is true for you and me. What was true for the woman with the issue of blood or the lame man by the pool at Siloam is true for you and me. What was true for Paul and the Thessalonian believers that he's writing to in this text is true for us today. It is not relative. It is not fleeting. Listen to me. It is not negotiable. God's not sitting back, wringing his wrist, hoping that you will embrace it hoping that you will negotiate with him, put, putting it up for grabs or open for discussion. God's truth is truth. Believe it or reject it. That's basically the only options you have. But this drama reveals doctrine, reveals truths. It tells us who God is about being the sovereign king of the universe. It tells us what he, is, what he is like and what he is not like. He's not some kind of big ball of fluff. He's not the man upstairs. He is a God who is completely sovereign and righteous and just and loving and eternal and omniscient and omnipotent and omnipresent. He is completely veracity or truth. He is unchangeable. He is immutable. That's the God he is. And he is all of that. And yet he loves you enough to sacrifice the most precious thing in the world. And that is his only begotten son for you. It tells us who we are, where we came from, where we're going if we reject the Lord Jesus. It tells us that our biggest problem in life is not our, our family, it's not our spouse, it's not my circumstances, it's not my job, it's not my boss. The biggest problem in the world that I have is my own sin. It tells us what God has done to bring us back to himself. It tells us who the Son of God is and what he has done. This drama reveals to us the futility of rejecting and rebelling against the God of the universe. So the drama, the story of Scripture, reveals fixed, unchangeable yet life-changing truths. This is doctrine. And listen, the true believer will not only love God, but will love God's Word also and will love those doctrines. Boy, sometimes just read Psalms and read how David loved the statues. Read Psalm 119, the longest one, 150 or so verses. No, 176 verses, I believe. And every verse is talking about the commandments, the statutes, the precepts, the truths, the realities, the doctrines of God's word.
drama, doctrine. Word number three, doxology. Doxology. What is doxology? It is our response to God's truth. Doxology means worship and praise. It is a word for glory. We sing the doxology, and we're going to close our service today with the doxology. It is a praise. It is a worship, but it's going to be the new doxology, not just the one that you have known. Here is how all this fits together. As we begin to grasp and understand the drama, the romance story of God loving his people back to himself as it is revealed in scripture, as we begin to understand that drama, it yields to us certain realities, certain fixed truths that you can base your life on. You can depend your life on. You can take them to the bank. They are money. They are solid. These are timeless truths that we call doctrine. And as we begin to embrace those doctrinal truths, it provides a framework for our lives and it begins to, to work in our lives. Let's put the points up. Caitlin of the bullet points. God's timeless truths not only guide the story, the drama of what God is doing in our world, they also shape and direct our lives. Through doctrine, we find meaning, purpose, hope, and joy. Everything that we have ever sought, we just didn't know what to call it. And then the response to these truths and to God's story is a heart that overflows with gratitude expressed through worship and praise. This is our doxology offered up to God. Beloved, if you read the scripture and you claim to be a child of God and all you see are burdensome commandments and all you see is something that repels you and drives you away from God rather than to your knees in worship and praise, there's something dramatically wrong in your life. As we embrace the truth of God, the only way of responding is through doxology and praise and worship. That's why it is a dirty, rotten shame for a believer to ever walk into the house of God with other believers and then to sit there like a lump on a log when there's an opportunity to, to exalt Christ in our worship and our praise. As Jason said early in the service, sing loud. It'll amaze you how many times the book of Psalms tells you to do that, to sing loud and long to the Lord. That's why David said that God had put a new song in his mouth and it was a song of praise to our God. That's Psalm 40. It's a new song. It's a song of praise. Do you have that new song of praise in your heart? Do you have it on your lips? It is an evidence of genuine faith. It is the fruit of true conversion. We discover through this drama and through these doctrines 
that everything that happened outside of us in history now becomes our story. In worship, we are given our own lines in the script and in the story. We join the cast of characters. It's not just a great story with interesting doctrines. It grabs our heart and we jump feet first, heart first, maybe I should say, right into the middle of it. Drama, the romance. Doctrine, the realities. Doxology, our response. Word number four, discipleship. This is the result, the result. An interesting thing happens when we offer our doxology to God. You'll see it on the screen. True worship and praise turns our hearts outward towards our fellow man. We are motivated to live the life of a disciple by serving others, by meeting needs, by sharing the gospel. And we are becoming like Christ. And this is what discipleship is all about. Oh, there's lots of books. There's lots of plans. There's lots of strategies for how to make a disciple. And all of that's fine and good. But I'm going to tell you, folks, it's not a strategy. It doesn't matter if you swat the scriptures or if you just immerse yourself in them day by day and revel in the truth of God's word. There's no one way to become a disciple. There's no set pattern. It is to love the story of God, to embrace the truths of God, to give God your heart and soul in worship, and let him turn you outwards on the world that you look at the world not as a bunch of evil people, not as somebody to run from and be repelled by, but as someone that needs to know the story just like you know it. Living this drama informed by the doctrine and shaped by the experience of true worship we are able to live out our part in the story wherever God has placed us. From time to time, I'm asked, what is your strategy for Calvary Baptist Church? What all kinds of ministries do you think of and lean towards and build in God's people there at Calvary Baptist Church? What's your strategy for growth? I used to know a bunch of those things, but I'm gonna tell you, our strategy is to make disciples. To make disciples. Let's put it on the screen one more time, just as I call it out. Would you do that, please, Caitlin? It's first of all, drama. It's second, the doctrines. Third, doxology. And fourth, discipleship. Now, what does that result in? Let's go ahead and put the last one up. That's our direction for life. 
And that's the direction we want to point others to. And perhaps little do you know that every single Sunday you walk into here and you see that compass on the wall behind me or maybe on a worship guide in front of you, I hope that you will learn to recognize and remember that the four points to the compass is this drama, doctrine, doxology, and discipleship. So if I ever stand up here as your pastor and I do this to you, (laughs) don't jump and get mad. I'm just reminding you of God's story, of the doctrines it teaches us, of the praise that it prompts inside of us as a response, and of the discipleship that God is using it to build us into every day. You know what that'll do? That'll take us out of our own self-absorbed lives and cause us to realize that only through the Bible and only through God is there any real direction for life. Amen. Think of an old sailing ship of long ago on a violent storm-tossed sea. And I ask you, on that sea where every man is holding on for dear life and all the goods and cargo have been lashed down lest it be lost overboard, that the most solid and firm thing on that ship, the only thing that is solid and firm is the needle of that compass that stays on true north. And remember, that's what God's word is for you and me. It is the compass needle that points due north. So one last image for your imagination today, the picture, Caitlin. Every day, you and I face a decision. A decision. Are we going to go our way or are we going to go God's way? Are we going to be circumstance-shaped people that get bounced around by all the ups and downs of life? Or will we be gospel-shaped people? That's a decision you and I make every single day. And please remember this, that true success in life will never be determined just by the dreams you dream. It'll be determined by the choices you make. We all dream good dreams for our family, for ourselves, for our children, for our church. But dreams won't get you anywhere without the hard, fast, daily decisions that bring them to pass. God invites you to join him in this one true story being written, still with God continuing to be written, not in additions to the Bible for you and me, but God is still, as we said when we were in Hebrews 11, God is still writing the book of faith What will you do? Will you decide to allow the wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ to shape your life? Will you be a gospel-shaped follower of Jesus? 
That's what turns the world upside down. Let's close by reading our scripture that we've been reading for the last few Sundays. Galatians chapter 6. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. That's what it means to be the church of the living God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you for the story, our story, recorded in your word. Father, I pray that we would see ourselves in it. We will embrace it. We will love your truth. We will live it every day. Let it shape our lives. And so may we change our world. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our heart's desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.